Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the author of several books, which are just screenshots of my best tweets. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is James Crabtree, who has the best name ever. He has written a new nonfiction book about the world of, quote, reclusive billionaires, fugitive tycoons, and shadowy political power brokers. And it's not about America. It's about India. The book is called The Billionaire Raj, and it's out now in hardcover. James, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about the the book itself. But first, I want to get, how did you get to writing about billionaire Rajas in in India? Uh, I lived in India. Give me your your little history, your short history. Potted history. Um, I moved to India in 2011, and I lived there for five years in Mumbai, the financial capital. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a journalist like you by background. I used to work for the Financial Times and various other magazines. That's a fancy newspaper, Uh, I understand. It is a nice pink newspaper. Um, and so while I was there, I mean, a lot of foreign correspondents end up writing books about India because it's a fascinating place, but not many of them do it in Mumbai. And so I was covering uh, banking and finance. And, and so I was in the city that all of these guys who were making all the money and having their ridiculous big houses um, um, at the time that this was happening. And so I became fascinated by you know, how they made their money and what the effect of it was. Right. And the, most of them were – This was, was this your area of coverage, just – Rich people or what? No, I mean, I covered everything. So uh, I, I covered all of corporate India. So banking, mm-hmm. finance, I covered tech, um, the startup scene, um, all sorts of things. But but in a sense, lording over it uh, physically and metaphorically were the, the super rich, the billionaire class. Right. And while I was there, their numbers were expanding, you know, a dozen a, a, dozen a year. Through, through tech and other areas. Uh, well, so the tech ones came a bit earlier. So this is sort of part of the story of the so book. So g- give the landscape of these billionaires. So, uh, go back to the mid-1990s. Uh, India started to open up its economy after 40 years of socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it got independence from the Brits. You can tell I'm a Brit in 1947. Began to liberalize in the mid-1990s. Initially, you had um, a few billionaires who were created, and many of them were tech billionaires. So, that was the, sort of the early, the first decade in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You had people who were doing IT outsourcing in particular. Wipro. Yeah, Wipro, Infosys, TCS. Right. They made a lot of money. Um, and generally, they were a very good thing and still remain that way. They're admired figures. People like them. It was in the mid-2000s, which um, in the rest of the world was the, the the time of the great moderation, growth going crazy, China entering the world economy. And so India re-globalized. And when that happened, you had a second wave of, of billionaire wealth creation that happened in a much more dubious way. So mm-hmm. lots of corruption scandals what the economists call rent-seeking. Um, and so that is really the heart of the book, um, this uh, portion of what you might call the bad billionaires as opposed to the good. Mm-hmm. All right, we can make a difference between them. And so talk about what, how, when you mean bad, when you're saying rent-seeking. Could you explain that more for the average person? Yeah, so rent-seeking is an economic term, but basically it means, let's call it crony capitalism. So crony capitalism means collusion between the political and business elite. So let's mm-hmm. say, go back to the mid-1990s, you are... Probably Nanda Nilekani is the most famous IT software billionaire. He's the guy who came up with the phrase, the world is flat for Thomas Friedman. Mm-hmm. Thomas Friedman was sitting in his office in Bangalore, um, and Nilekani sort of used that phrase to describe globalization. He made his uh, money pretty honestly. Uh, he found a way of taking Indian tech workers and exporting to the world, um, you know, earned billions of dollars in revenue and therefore became a very rich man. Right. Totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. In the mid-2000s, what happened much more often uh, was that uh, basically these businessmen started colluding with politicians to get hold of things that only the politicians could provide. Now, that might be a 2G, Telco. 3G telecom right. license. There's a big scam. Might be a mining license. Might be 
land um, could be for building skyscrapers in the city, could be land for building a steel plant in the countryside. And and in a sense, the the politicians um, and the business people would collude um, and then they'd sort of split the difference and keep some of the profit for themselves. And so that was why India had, India's always had a lot of corruption, retail corruption. You know, you pay a bribe to a politician, no, pay a bribe to a policeman or to get a marriage license. But in the mid-2000s, that retail corruption sort of went wholesale, um, uh, and that created a lot of wealth, uh, but it also created a whole range of corruption scandals from which India is only really just recovering. Right. And so talk about the impact of India, because it's always been seen as the possibly second tech power, but it never became that. Um, I want to focus a little more on tech because it it was such a promising area. I, I traveled there. Oh, my. Back in the 1990s when they were moving away from being sort of an economy that that provided backup support, essentially, for U.S. tech growth, for example. I remember writing a story about a guy that was developing a a dormitory arrangement on a a former... I think it was a yak farm. I'm not sure. It was something like a water buffalo farm. And they were doing it because it was so difficult to travel in India. And so support staff was hard to get to work. There were electrical outages and stuff. So he created this own village. He was a Microsoft executive. And so they were doing just-in-time programming, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about sort of where how India's gone, because, you know, it's been displaced by China and by Israel and other places when everyone thought that India was going to be that. And it still is, obviously. It still is a strong tech. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I would. I I I understand what you say about China. China has had an enormous boom in oh, consumer consumer one tech, now, right? I mean, it, it's sort of miles ahead. But I mean, India remains an enormously strong tech economy. If you go down mm-hmm. to Bangalore or Hyderabad, sure. then you have. You know, you have big, you've got plenty of unicorns, but you've also got people providing tech services for people mm-hmm. all around the world. Mm-hmm. And so that that remains the case. I mean, I suppose two things happen. One, the tech side of the economy sort of got eclipsed by the side of the economy, which is in my book, which is the sort of slightly darker, dirtier side of the economy. Right. Then you have a more recent story, um, which I think is sort of interesting from your point of view, uh, which is after the Chinese tech boom, particularly after the Alibaba flotation, a lot of investors, um, both here in Silicon Valley, but also the sort of you know people like SoftBank, um, the hedge funds in Hong Kong, um, Tiger Global, these sorts of um, investors that sort of crossed, they all got very excited about India and thought, okay, India is going to be the next China. Right. And we've all got tons of money. We just made an absolute packet on the Alibaba flotation. So actually, you know, it's silly season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was one of the earlier examples of what you see now with um, with SoftBank in general, which is just sort of you know, money being sprayed around everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so in, when I was there in 2012, 13, 14, probably 13, 14, this was the height of this, lots and lots of very aggressive investment by foreign uh, VC funds. And, you know, they had, a, they had a sense that India was going to be the next China. It hasn't quite worked out like that. But in right. the medium to long term, India clearly is going to be a hugely important tech economy. I mean, it's right. a vast economy. Um, it's got 1.3 billion potential consumers. The story of India tech is just that it's going to take quite a bit longer to get where China has gotten to for reasons that maybe we can go into. Right. So let's talk about these billionaires. So outline what they do to the economy. It seems malevolent throughout that it's not helpful necessarily except for a small cadre of people and elites. Well, so this is to move us to moving back outside of the tech world. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking here, think in your head of, uh, I mean, the subtitle of my book is called The Billionaire Raj, India's New Gilded Age. And so the image you should have in your head is really of a Gilded Age tycoon in America. So these Mm -hmm. are 
kind of robber baron tycoons. They run conglomerate businesses. They're doing things like building steel mills or, or building toll roads, ports. Um, and to some extent, they do perfectly good things. They're building um, reasonable assets. They're not, this, India is not Russia. These guys are not out-and-out crooks. They're not only relying on their political connections to make money. Typically, they're reasonably skilled business people who try to get an extra sort of yard of advantage right. by working their political connections. Um, and so that's sort of how India worked. Um, for It's how it worked in the socialist era. And then when the walls came down and everything became much more valuable, that's still how it worked um, until all of these big corruption scandals happened in the, in the 2000s. And so... I mean, that's sort of a good and bad thing. They they built some reasonable infrastructure. Um, but in the end, what happened was they got a bit too greedy. There were these big corruption scandals and there was a huge public backlash that happened at the end of the 2000s. And India is only really just recovering from that backlash um, mm. uh, because there's been public scandals. Uh, and the prime minister, current prime minister, Narendra Modi, won an overwhelming election in 2014 on an anti-corruption platform and a kind of promise to clean things up. Mm-hmm. All right, so where is India now then? With this is You've got all these billionaires running around. Uh, most of the billionaires in this country in the past 10 years have been tech billionaires, but this is wide-ranging. So wh- what is the state of the economy there? And then in the next section, I'd like to talk about sort of w- some of the controversies around WhatsApp and other things like that that's happening mm-hmm. there, sort of the political scene that's allowed this to happen. I mean, what's happened in India is a the billionaires have not been created in the tech sector, and that's a bad thing. I mean, in the sense, India could do with a lot more tech billionaires than it has um, because generally they're, broadly speaking, creating value and, and doing good things. Um, the billionaires that have been created are typically in these um, slightly um, more dubious sectors that are close to the government, and the number of them is stunning. So as I say, mm-hmm. middle of the 1990s, there were two of them. Between them, they had about $3 billion. Now we have... 119, 120, together they're worth $450 billion. That's more than any country outside of the U.S. and China. And and compared even to China at a comparable stage of its development, so China liberalized about 10 years earlier, so it's sort of 10, 20 years ahead. But if you take India and China when their economies were about the same size, then India has 10 times as many billionaires as China did then. So right. it's creating wealth at the very, very top um, at a huge rate, but the rest of the country is falling relatively behind. So, um, you know, the middle class, the middle 40% has seen their share of national income dis- decline quite a lot, while mm-hmm. the top 1% and the top, you know, 0.001% have shot off ahead. And the implications of that being you have someone like Modi coming in to... Well, the implications of that is it's not a great place to be. So India is already probably the most unequal large economy in the world, comparable to Brazil and South Africa. And it's at a much earlier stage of its development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if it continues on this path, it will become a almost unprecedentedly unequal country. And there's all sorts of problems. like San Francisco. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. As I was walking around this morning, a little bit like that. But there's all sorts of problems that come with that. Um, there's pretty good research from the IMF that very unequal countries are less stable. It's less easy to introduce economic reforms, you know, yada, yada, yada. There's all sorts of problems which come from very, very extreme inequality. Some inequality is okay. The successful developing economies of East Asia, you know, they weren't, they weren't Sweden. Um, they had lots of rich people, um, but they're a bit more equal than India was. They're a bit better at making sure the rich paid their taxes, a bit better at making sure the sort of lower middle classes and working classes had good health care and more education. Destitute. Yeah, that's right. And we're able to move them more efficiently from farms where most of them worked into factories and then onwards up the value chain. So India has a problem with extreme inequality. Um, And it's almost, you know, so take a step back. What's your image of India in your head? You know, it's an image of inequality. Sort of people know about the caste system. They know about extreme poverty. 
there's a lot of other inequality in India. You know, the south is richer than the north. The cities are richer than the, the villages. Um, but it's almost because we all think that India is a very unequal place, we haven't noticed how spectacularly more unequal it has become over the last 10 or 15 years. That's a really good point. Um, when you talk about what has happened here and the development, as I said before, one of the things that happened in this country was there was sort of a, a push from entrepreneurism, essentially, uh, that got to where we are. A lot of the people started as small entrepreneurs. And in your case, you're talking about people that are advantaging themselves using politicians and other means. Talk about the entrepreneurial nature of the country, um, because, again, it's a country that I think w- was bypassed for China and, and Israel, essentially. I mean, India has a fantastic entrepreneurial culture, even the people who are corrupt are entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The, 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 sc- the scams are, are yeah. extraordinarily inventive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there, there's huge energy uh, in sort of Indian business culture. Uh, look at Indian diasporas all around the world. So here in, in Silicon Valley, um, more uh, amongst the tech companies that are started by uh, non-Americans, Indi- right. Indians are, dom- are dominant. You yep. know, they, 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 yeah, more, more chief executives, yeah. but per- particularly immigrant started companies. Indians start much more than the Chinese or the Taiwanese, which are the next groups down. All around the world, Indians are successful. So there's, you know, there's huge entrepreneurial dynamism. Um, what I think people have got wrong about the Indian tech economy and why it is perceived to be a relative failure mm-hmm. is actually some fairly simple things, which is that even though India has this, it has Bangalore and Hyderabad, it has this sort of amazing tech culture and it has, you know, people like Satya Nadella who are these icons, it's still a very poor country. And so if you want to build um, a B2C e-tail business, a sort of Amazon-style business, then you need rich middle-class consumers and India right. doesn't have that many of them. Right. I mean, the, the size of the Indian middle class is super tiny, much, much smaller than you would imagine. Maybe, I think, figure is about 10 million people earn more than $20,000 a year. It's tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can't build these mass businesses on top of that. Add, add on to that, you know, India still, its infrastructure is pretty hopeless. Um, you know, it's getting better, but you need cold chain logistics. You need uh, just-in-time delivery. You know, mm-hmm. all of the things that give Amazon its edge uh, require really good infrastructure. So Amazon's in India at the moment. It's one of its most important developing markets. It um, it's investing $5 billion. Walmart just spent $16 billion to buy Flipkart, which is the biggest um, unicorn in India. Mm-hmm. Its valuation has been declining a bit, but I think it's about $12 billion now. Yes, it was maybe $20 billion at its height. But the innovation that often occurs in the Indian economy is, in a sense, workarounds. It's a kind of kludge style of innovation mm-hmm. where Kludge? Is you, that a technical word? Yeah, it's a technical term for like a workaround. Um, uh, there's a, a guy in Washington who talks about DC as a kludgeocracy because you can never do anything <laughs> the right way. You've always got to kind of sort of fix something that's broken. I like that um, and so take an example. I used to live in Mumbai. Uh, it's a city of 25 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit like Manhattan. If you think about it in your head, it's a peninsula, tightly packed, um, very fast moving and energetic. It's got banks and skyscrapers and whatnot. It doesn't have, as with anywhere else in India, um, a, an address. So literally, my address where I lived in our apartment was the name of our apartment building, and it said next door to Radio Club, which was like the famous building a block away, because there isn't an address system. So if you want to run, that's just one tiny example of a hundred things that these guys have to fix, which is how do you deliver something in the post when there isn't like a proper address system in India? Um, And so all of these things just mean it's taken a lot longer to build 
these businesses and the size of the market uh, in the short term is not really big enough to have justified all of the investment. So basically, it's a sort of classic example of um, investors not really doing their homework properly. They saw the Chinese example. China, you know, had real hockey stick growth from right. one year to the next, you know, I don't know, when it, 2009, and 2010. Middle right. Big middle class, great infrastructure, reasonably supportive regulation. Um, boom, suddenly China is, has more retail e-commerce customers than anywhere else in the mm-hmm. world combined. Mm-hmm. People thought that would happen in India. It hasn't, and so they're very disappointed. But the reason that that hasn't happened is really quite explicable if you just look at where India is in its st- stage of development. Now, you know, in the medium term, in the long term, it is going to happen in India. In fact, there's a case to be made that these big tech giants are going to be more influential in India than anywhere else because... Right. There isn't going to be a Walmart in India. There's not going to right. be a state. We're going to go straight from crummy little corner shops to everybody shopping online. Right. It's just going to take quite a long time to get there. And there's therefore- no equivalence to Amazon there. I'm trying to think. There's there's smaller ones. Nobody, you know, in China you can name WeChat, the Tencent people, the Alibaba people. There's a cu- bunch of very large Baidu big companies, and in India there's fewer. There's Correct. Well, that's also partly a good thing, right? Um, that's because India and China have very different tech ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So you, you know this, but China's totally closed. And so right. part of the reason why China has these giant domestic tech the operations is the government didn't let all the good American companies go in there or they mm-hmm. totally hamstrung them mm-hmm. um, to the point they couldn't compete. So the, one of the reasons, I guess, why India doesn't have its only equivalent of this is it has Google. It has right. Facebook. So um India is now the largest market by users for every one of these tech giants. Right, um, it is. You know, Facebook, tw- Twitter, sure. WhatsApp, Facebook, Google, all of them have We'll get into e- that in a minute. Um, and so the re- part of the reason why India doesn't have domestic giants, I mean, it has um, Ola, which is the Uber rival. It has Flipkart, now bought by Walmart, which is the Amazon rival, and a bunch of other sort of consumer plays. But it doesn't have the platforms um, – Although there is one called Paytm, which may become a platform, which is an Alibaba-backed payment play. Um, but it doesn't have those because it's got the American ones. And so if you've right. got Google and Facebook and Twitter, then, you know, why do you need your own indigenous unless version? Unless you keep them out. Unless you keep them out. Yeah, which – but, it's I mean, I late. think in the end the theory would suggest that um, India's – open ecosystem should have advantages over the Chinese one in the long run. Uh, again, that's a very interesting theoretical question because obviously the innovation that you get off the Chinese mega platforms is amazing. I mean, I spent some time in China. I now live in Singapore. So I've written a bit about um, Didi and Alibaba and Ant in particular. And there's clearly something amazing that you can do with these sort of huge Chinese companies that you can't do elsewhere. Right. But the open sort of innovation system that India has, when combined with real depth of sort of programming talent in particular at the very top end in cities like Bangalore and the links that you have with Silicon Valley, you know, that should have some long-run advantages. Yeah, presumably. I mean, you can do very well when the government is at your back, essentially. So talk a little bit about if if these companies are in there. I'd love to talk to you about it, and then I want to get back to talking about some cases in your book in the next segment. But what's happened with WhatsApp there? Obviously, a lot of people have been writing about this, about uh, murders and, and, I guess, lynching, all kinds of bad behavior based on WhatsApp. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that controversy? Yeah, so WhatsApp has become the latest sort of 
poster boy of bad social media behavior. It's happened right. um, in the last month or two. India, regrettably, does have quite a lot of lynchings. Um, this is just a sort of fact of life in a country that has a weak police force and a weak state. Mm-hmm. Um, but WhatsApp is amazingly popular in India. It's um, it's WhatsApp's this largest market. Facebook-owned yeah. messaging app. For, yeah, for those who don't know, it's the, yeah, exactly. It's Facebook-owned messaging app. Facebook bought it two or three years ago, um, paid what seemed to be a big price, but got, a, com- got, a, got a bargain, I think. Um, and it's amazingly popular in or India. I mean, everybody uses it. Um, and, and so it has become the latest example in the phenomenon of sort of online disinformation slash fake news that people... Um, in addition, so one of the, the sort of funny things that happens, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a little while ago about how India wakes up in the morning and sends each other, everyone sends each other these funny little kind of GIF messages saying good morning or we are blessed today. Um, and both um, WhatsApp and also Google discovered that this was sort of gumming up their servers in, in the US um, mm-hmm. because of the popularity of the service. But it's also used um, to forward you know, badly sourced false information. And so in the in this case, in these villages, there have been a rash of examples in which a WhatsApp groups appear to have been used to coordinate um, lynchings of suspected child abusers. Right. Um, now, that that's what's happened. Whether that is actually true or not, I'm rather skeptical. Um, you can never really tell. It sort of seems to me that there is likely to be some portion of this, these were just lynchings that were happened anyway, and people use mm-hmm. WhatsApp, and so WhatsApp is kind of being blamed. Right. But it speaks to a much bigger problem um, for Facebook in particular, but to a lesser extent for Twitter, which is happening all across Asia, um, which is when you slap these social media platforms on top of poor developing countries that have deep social divisions and no real sort of weak media, weak established media, you get big problems, um, mm-hmm. big problems of sort of spreading uh, hate speech, big problems of false information, big problems also of actually these things being manipulated by autocratic regimes. It's not so much true in India, but it's true in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me that Facebook in particular has a huge problem in India, in Myanmar, in Sri Lanka, and a lot of places in Asia, um, that they're not really beginning to grapple with problems that come with the platform. Yeah, they're, they're having of, some trouble here, too. Right. I mean, it's... Grappling this, is a good... This, this, in a sense, may be a sort of... I mean, it may be a secondary concern for them, given all of the sort of Trump-Russia stuff. But nonetheless, they're being accused of being involved in um, exacerbating a genocide in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter what else is on your plate, you do not want to be in the place of yeah. having sensible people. The United Nations said... The genocide in Myanmar has been demonstrably worse because of the way Facebook is used as a platform, and that is an enormous problem in anyone's book. Right, right, which is, is being used as it's designed. Let me just say, yeah, <laughs> again and again. No, and I mean, it's precisely it's a very, how it's designed. I think it's a very complicated picture. Maybe the same as here that, it, but particularly in emerging. Asia, which is the area I know, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp, um, you know, they have many positive elements. So the consumer surplus from a service like WhatsApp, it's free, mm-hmm. basically free. I mean, you, you get it for the price of your cheap data packet. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of helping people connect with one another, all the yeah, things that know. it says, you know, but that sort of stuff, that's huge. It, when you're poor and you haven't been able to do that, you know, when you're living halfway across a country, you're not able to speak to your relatives. Very, it's a different, more important, more significant thing than in the United States. And so I don't want to be seen just to be needlessly bashing them, but I really feel that Facebook has a big problem here. They don't even have an office in mm-hmm. Myanmar, a country in which they're being accused of in some way being involved in not, right. you know. And so they, the they, 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 this is a country that has, um, you know, 55% margins 
Like it's a very, very profitable country. Yeah. Co- company, they are not spending enough money on uh, trying to grapple with the downsides that their platform um, provides, which are different in these countries than they are in, in the West. Right. They firstly went, I doubt they were aware of them in the first place. And now I think the reaction is are the issue that most of us have with Facebook is the reaction is slow. Yeah, and, and WhatsApp is, I think, a particular problem because it's such a lean organization. I mean, mm-hmm. Facebook at least is, it's sort of bulking up. I can see this month by month in Southeast right. Asia. Like, they're sort of, they're hiring people in countries. They're, they're trying to do their best. I mean, they could do more, but mm-hmm. they're, they're at least moving in the right direction. But WhatsApp is a sort of a super tiny, lean company built with engineers and really nothing else. Yeah. And so my sense is they are completely blindsided by what is going on in What's India at the moment. Yeah. And what, so what do you, when you look at that, when you see that happening, is has tech been a good thing for India? And then I want to talk a little bit about these billionaires. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I for sure, I think most of the things that technology can do is very helpful, um, not just the communication, but, I mean, in a sense, the mobile phone was a miraculous device in India because it was um, much more so than here. You went from a situation in which... Rural farmers. Or yeah, nobody had anything. You no know, information. You, no information, no nothing. And you went from a situation to that in which, I mean, still, it's not as if the entire population has smartphones, but you're moving pretty quickly to a right. position in which... You have, you know, ubiquitous mass communication. That doesn't mean people are going to use it in the same way that we are. It also doesn't mean you know, not right. very many people in India have credit cards yet. Um, nonetheless, the mobile phone has been a massively empowering tool. It's for, you know, for poor people, for women. Um, but it, it would be naive to think that you slap this new set of technologies onto an emerging market that is sort of complicated and difficult and has different religions and different cultures, it would be naive to think that all of this is going to be good. And so there are some real problems. And the tech companies are just not terribly good at dealing with this because they're not, um, you know, they don't have that many people. They're still right. kind of quite light. Most of their engineering talent is here in Silicon Valley. Right. They have thin government affairs departments. They don't invest in kind of local operations. And so in the end, they get caught out when um, their services become immensely misused. popular in Asia and right. get misused. Right. And how do you think Silicon Valley looks towards India right now? Obviously, we have a lot of Indian expatriates here. We've got a lot of CEOs, a lot of founders have, who have come and stayed here. How do you imagine the perception of it is? There was that controversy when Mark Andreessen made that boneheaded remark about India, if you remember, a couple of years ago. Yeah, so the the... the Silicon Valley companies have got to slightly watch their step in India. So Facebook, again, is the one that put its foot in it, tried to launch a service called Free Basics. That was around the time that Mark Andreessen sort of made this um, rather, um, yeah, he sort of talked about benign colonialism and Mm -hmm. that obviously (laughs) went down very badly. Um, So they tried to launch this service called... We love that East India company. Yeah, yeah. he tried to launch this this, um, service called Free Basics, which... um, uh, was a sort of, you know, sort of free internet, but um, that people said contravene net neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Indians didn't like this at all. Um, yeah. And there was a big backlash about it. And Facebook tried to kind of barrel through. It was another one of these incidents in which um, Mark Zuckerberg just came across as completely kind of cloth-eared, sort of basically tried to kind of push forward at saying they were really doing the right thing for the right reasons until the backlash became overwhelming and then they had to have a humiliating climb down. Right. Um, I mean, I don't, but in general, I mean, I think, for instance, Google has done a reasonably good job. Um, they um, have a better image, I think. And, and in general, I don't think there's a sort of sense that the, the Silicon Valley tech companies are a sort of bad thing as long as they don't 
do things that are stupid. Right. Uh, there does tend to be, in addition to um, this broader problem I've talked about with Facebook, they get into trouble because the ones that are platforms for free speech um, are used by a mixture of sort of nutcases and um, people who want to test the boundaries of what are often countries that, you know, are far from First Amendment free speech environments. Um, and so they get sort of wrapped up in that. But I have to say, I think often one can look quite benignly on the tech companies from that perspective, because in a sense, often they're inadvertently challenging laws that are not great anyway. And, and so they're actually a sort of platform for expression if you are, you know, if you're gay, if you're an untouchable in India, if you are sort of denied a place in the public square, then that's often where these companies right. actually have a reasonable role to play. Right, right. The idea of the Raj, that's... Uh, it's an interesting one. It's it's sort it's got it's sort of the old school implications of of colonialism as we were talking about before, um, and the new school. Talk about when you talk about these abuses. I'd love to know what's going to happen from here after this is have these have been created because if you have this sustained era of corruption, essentially, is what you're talking about. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like, what are these billionaires like then with all this money and, and how they got to where they got? So the the Raj phrase. As some of your listeners may not know that this is the Raj was what the period of British colonialism yes. was called, and it, it's um, it's a Sanskrit word Raja, which means rule or kingdom, um, and so this phrase is often used in India. So in the socialist period, when the economy was closed, they had something called the License Raj. This is how people used to know a world in which if you were a company, there was a license or a quota which said literally right. how many things you could make. So if you made widgets uh, or cars, you were only allowed to make 20,000 or whatever it might be. So that, right. that was the license Raj. And so people talk about Rajs, and that's why I called it the billionaire Raj. Where does it go from here? Um, good question. I mean, I think India stands at a sort of inflection point where it has these fault lines um, that it has to deal with, um, one of which is the rise of the super rich and the fact that India is becoming much more unequal, one of mm -hmm. which is crony capitalism, um, and another is uh, the boom and bust model in its industrial investment cycle. Um, and I suppose the argument that I make in the book is that there's no reason to be pessimistic about this. If you were to have sat in uh, in the middle of New York in 1880 in the height of the American Gilded Age, then you would have looked around and seen a country that had, you know, just the most delinquent class of super rich, completely amoral, in it for themselves, doing right. absolutely nothing. A lot of oyster eating. Good. Yeah, exactly. Oyster eating. A lot of shootings. Mansion construction, sort of yeah, general, nice general kind of rape and pillage. And they were working hand in glove with a political class that were, you know, as venal as anywhere in the world. And so you may well have been pretty pessimistic about mm -hmm. America's chances. But, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later, things began to look up for a whole range of reasons that people are aware of, the um, assertion of control over politics by well, the middle classes. Wars. Well, that's true. I mean, it's never a complicated, never an easy picture. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, went, you move from the Gilded Age to the Progressive Era um, and, yeah. you know, history sort of developed. And so there's no reason why India shouldn't be able to do that. We also know from the example of the economies of East Asia that moved from poverty through middle income status and then some of them to become rich economies like Korea or Taiwan. Um, you know, we sort of know how to do this. Uh, and so there's no real reason why India shouldn't be able to follow. But it's not going to happen by accident. Right. Um, well, and you that's have the, a strong middle class in the middle, right? That's right. So you, because if you have just the super rich and the very poor, which I see developing in this country really easily, there's certainly more and more distance between the top and the bottom. I mean, I think that's that's the alarming thing for India, that it's become very, very unequal in the early stages of its development. And so if you want to become prosperous, 
you have to build out the middle class. Um, but you do that really your first job before you start thinking about building out the mm -hmm. middle class, which is quite a kind of rich world conception. You're talking about moving farmers into the lower middle class, sort of lower mm -hmm. working classes sure. and then upwards. And so in a sense, half of the people in India still work on the land. So, um, you know, as, yeah, as, as was true in, um, you know, the United States before the Civil War. And so that's the sort of task that you're talking about, bulking up the middle class in the cities. And India is about to undergo the most astonishing process of urbanization, you know, since China just did the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the second most mm -hmm. impressive movement of people in human history. So some 300 million people are going to move from villages into some mm -hmm. sort of urban center over the next yeah. 20 or 30 years. I just saw a really fascinating statistic that most people will be, 70% of people are living in cities here in the United States mm -hmm. in the next 50 years or something like that. But 70% of the voting will be among the rural area. You know what I mean? It, it, the people that aren't there will have most much of the voting power, and they happen to be all old white men, which was fascinating, which was really a whoa. Well, that's, that's interesting because that's very similar in India. Mm -hmm. So the, the one of the problems that India has is its politics are still very oriented to the villages. Um, right. and, and so that means you go to a city like Bangalore, um, which some of your listeners will have been to. It's the tech capital. It's the home to many of these unicorns. It's got an amazing deep bench of engineering talent. It feels a lot like San Francisco in many ways because it's still very unequal. There's still slums, but you mm. you you know you've got a lot of people riding around on micro scooters and, and that sort of thing. You have the yeah, real the, accoutrement the, of a sort of for anyone who's never been to India. The the disconnect is so strong. There's such modernity and such not. It's yeah. a really, it's really fascinating to but, be there. But Bangalore is a sort of classic example yeah. because, in addition to the sort of poverty which would catch your eye, it has terrible politics. I mean, just run by complete scoundrels. Mm -hmm. It's true of almost all Indian I cities, but, but Bangalore is particularly bad because you also there have you know, sort of reasonable urban middle class of people who are very globally connected and responsible and somehow they're not able to wrestle control of politics away, away from, from away from the bad guys. And and at the same time, all of the money still goes um, out, you know, such money as there is goes out towards the villages. Um, now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, in a sense, money may well um, follow... Uh, go to the people who really need it, but it does mean that you leave a city like Bangalore, which should be one of the beating hearts of your economy with pretty terrible infrastructure. Right. So you compare Bangalore to, I don't know, Shenzhen, um, and it's just a disaster. Which has seen um, huge development. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've just about managed to cobble together an urban rail system. The traffic in Bangalore is just almost, I mean, it must be, along with Jakarta and Manila, it's the worst traffic in the whole world. It's mm -hmm. just appallingly bad. And that's because the governance of the place um, is very problematic. And so that's, they used to say of the tech sector in the 1990s, um, they used to say it grows at night. Mm -hmm. And that was the sort of famous phrase, which meant that the only reason why India was able to develop this um, world-leading technology sector was sort of the government wasn't really noticing. It sort of <laughs> just sort of happened while no I one was looking. I do remember being there, writing a very variety of stories about tech in India and having to visit a minister. And, I, you know, it was like 20 ministers to get to the one minister who's just a, like essentially a mayor. Yeah. He wasn't even a big minister. It was kind of fascinating. And I remember sitting in the office waiting and waiting and waiting, just having my heels go. And I said, I bet I can reach Bill Gates faster than this guy. <laughs> and I reached Bill Gates faster. Yeah. I, I emailed him and he wrote back. This was back in no, the day I mean, when he wrote back. But it was really fa fascinating. And then I showed the minister. I was like, look, Bill Gates moves faster than you. I do. mean, it's sort of, sort of it's, in it one was, sense, this is a reason for, to some degree, you can look at this optimistic and say, well, look at what India has managed to achieve given all of these constraints. But that right. that's not actually the story that you want, right? The reason why India is lagging China is because you have 
world-class tech talent, um, interesting business models, great opportunities, but they are held back by the political system, the lack of infrastructure, and the sort of development stage of the country. And, and not very and, good billionaires, apparently. Yeah, um, that's true. That also doesn't, doesn't bad help. Bad billionaires. So, yeah. I like your bad versus good. I think they're all bad. But um, but let's finish up talking about where they go from here. If you have this, you have this period of growth, and then you have this period of sort of corruption, where does it go from here? Where do you see, like you have, now you have all these people who are very wealthy, these super rich, interested in keeping the status quo, presumably. Um, what happens to an economy like this? What well, has to happen? Well, with, a, with, with luck, what happens is what happened in Eastern Asia, um, which is that you introduce a whole range of political reforms, some of which are targeted at the super rich. So, you, as I say, you make sure people pay their taxes. You make sure they're responsible in other ways. Very few people in India pay taxes at the moment. You try and find ways to stop crony capitalism so that those people who do become rich do so because they are... Um, you know, they're innovative, they're sort of appropriately rewarded for creating mm-hmm. jobs, creating value. And then you put a big effort into the people at the bottom. Um, that's an area where India is badly lacking. So if you look at a country like um, Malaysia or Taiwan, they put a lot of effort into uh, schools and hospitals, basic pensions for old people. You know, you create not as, you know, this is not a European style social welfare system, but this is a system where people who live um, often rather fragile existences have some degree of social support so that they can go and kind of take risks, move to where the jobs are. And that's the sort of thing that India needs to do. And it needs to clean up its politics um, and sort of invest in a decent government. Where, where are those politics going? Because it seems rather authoritarian and and populism, right, under Modi, correct? I mean, that's... Yeah, so Narendra Modi is a sort of, he's a right-wing Hindu nationalist. Um, He's a contradictory figure because he is business-friendly and anti-corruption notionally, although his record has been a bit mixed. But on the other hand, his party... Um, it's a bit like the Republican Party of old before Trump when you had the Christian coalition and the Rockefeller Republicans. And so he sort of brings together those two strains in Indian life, the, the part of the center-right that is pro-business, but the part of the center-right that is also uh, a right-wing nationalist. So if you're an Indian liberal, uh, actually most people in business are quite pro-Modi, the tech sector, I think, as well. Most of them probably quite like the BJP, which is mm-hmm. his party. But if you're an Indian liberal, secular liberal, so the values um, in the Indian constitution, which was written in 1947, are not that different from the American constitution there. Mm-hmm. Liberal and secular, um, all the people of the country, many diverse faiths should live together. Those sorts of people who still believe in that, which includes me as an outsider, uh, tend to be slightly worried about the direction that Modi may be taking the country in. Mm-hmm. Slightly worried because... Well, because he, and in particular those around him, uh, do not believe in India as a secular, um, multiracial society. They believe in a Hindu nation in which Hindus are top dogs and Muslims in particular are, are sort right. of lesser lesser dogs, as it were. It's not the right phrase to use. but um, and, and so that's rather alarming because... You know, India does have a heritage of communal violence and rioting and all sorts mm-hmm. of things. And, and and those of us, A, you know, there's a moral reason for thinking that all people are of equal worth. But equally, if you want to develop, you want to have stability and allow people to invest. And many of us think that the, the sort of the old Indian system that is, is sort of secular and which minorities feel secure um, is more likely to be uh, the system that will help people, help India on its development path. Right. And to finish up, where do you think the next billionaires are coming from? Well, that's a great question. I hope that you will see a gradual shift in wealth creation. Uh, two things can happen. Firstly, some of the existing billionaires who you might put in the bad billionaire camp have, are getting drawn towards 
the the sort of cleaner parts of the economy. So one example would be Mukesh Ambani, who's India's richest man. Uh, his ridiculous. What does he make? What did he make? Uh, well, his ridiculous billion-dollar house is on the front cover of my book. He has this. Um, they call it a billion-dollar house. It's a 170-meter skyscraper in downtown Mumbai that he built for him and his wife and his three kids. A skyscraper. Um, yeah, he lives in a skyscraper. He does. Look, uh, this is. Was he uh, Trump? I'll show you the. Uh, I'm going to show you the picture there okay. now on the front cover of the book. So it's. Oh uh, my god. It's an extraordinary-looking building. It's called Antilia, uh-huh. um, and so he so built this. So he has this. the top part. No, or? he has the whole thing. What's he doing on the whole thing? Uh, I don't know. He's um, He's got a lot of apartments, got six floors of parking. Uh, there's a nice roof deck at the top. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary building, and it became a kind of icon of what I call India's Gilded Age. But right. Ambani has just spent a god-awful amount of money um, investing in a new telecoms outfit called Reliance Geo. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a greenfield 4G, super-fast new network mm-hmm. um, that he built because... His background is in oil refining and various types of heavy industry, but he decided that his company needed to be more on the consumer side of the economy. And he basically wanted to be a kind of tech guy. He wanted Mm -hmm. to be the sort of person who could sort of turn up in Silicon Valley and be treated like Jack Ma or Mark Zuckerberg. And there really you know, isn't one, is there? Yeah, and and so Comes he, um, I, I don't think he's going to play that role because he has too much for checkered heritage. But in a sense, he has been drawn into this new emerging kind of consumer tech economy, and that's not a bad thing. In a sense, whatever you think about Mukesh Ambani, and I'm pretty critical of him in the book, the fact that he has sunk all of this money into a pretty good new 4G network is very good for right. India. So and it's the bad billionaires will make good investments. That will that will happen, and then you know you will see that the cleaner parts of the economy simply attract more people. So that right. is partly tech. You will see a number of billionaires. So people like uh, Vijay Shikha Sharma, who's the, the guy who runs this Paytm company, which is the, the one that's most equivalent to Ant Financial in China. He's now a tech billionaire. You're seeing a kind of new generation of tech billionaires coming up from the startup scene that was getting investment three or four years ago. That's great. But that's not the only example. I mean, you know, consumer services, private sector financial services. So India's financial mm-hmm. system is very state-dominated, but right. there are banks and fintech startups and that sort of thing. Blockchain? Um, yeah, God knows blockchain. I mean, you, you know about that. I don't. I, don't um, <laughs> I never really understood it. Uh, but I think you will see, um, I, I think India is going to remain a very unequal society. And so the hope must be that more of that wealth is coming from entrepreneurially generated right. new money entrepreneurs who start out with nothing and make it on their own broadly, honestly, and you gradually just see the the sort of the people in what I call the billionaire are shrinking in importance over time. All right. And was there a favorite billionaire? Obviously, this guy with this yeah, I think, I mean, house. That's right. So I think Mukesh Ambani, if one figure embodies the sort of excess of uh, the billionaire Raj, then it's him and it's that house. And that's Is he why like Elon Musk level? Elon Musk is interesting because he... Um, he, in a sense, is the closest that you get in the modern Western economy to the, maybe Richard Branson in a kind of slightly sure. less interesting way. You know, he has that buccaneering spirit. And so when right. I first moved to Mumbai, the reason why I was captivated by these guys mm-hmm. is it's a form of capitalism that we just don't have anymore. You know, th- this really is a 19th century form of capitalism. And so Mukesh Ambani invested $30 billion in this network. He's never going to make that money back. I mean, it's a mad investment. He's doing it for various complicated reasons mm-hmm. of his own. But in a sense, there's something rather kind 
kind of admiral about that. I, I found that that like, what's the point of being a tycoon if you don't make crazy, I crazy kind of na- nation-building investments, right? I, I mean, there's nothing worse than being a kind of gutless tycoon. Gutless, what's the point of that? Non-creative billionaires. Yeah, yeah. I go around to many of them, and I know, and I'm like, you're a dull billionaire. Yeah, exactly. What's the point of? I would of have a layer. Making what some. Would you have? I'd have a layer. Yeah, I think so. Some sort of. Yeah. Well, he has a sub basement in this house in which he's got an indoor I'd football have an and army. basket. Pitch. I obviously have an army. You'd have some goons. Some goons. Yeah, I would have, have a lot of goons. <laughs> there would be goons everywhere. You, you, you'd rough up your enemies. I mean, all sorts of fun well, you could okay. have. So, rough you know. up. Don't <laughs> use that euphemism. <laughs> Certainly. I would have invisible planes. I would have all kinds. You I'd have, have the have British a, Secret Service after in, me. In, in addition to your fetching aviator sunglasses, uh, you, could have a, would, you could have a bat suit of some sort with some special all power. All of it. Yeah, all of it. So, so. W- w- the, the conclusion the that mansion. you had. Yeah, that's right. The Swisher Mansion. No, I don't, wouldn't have a big house. It's ridiculous. Um your conclusion here is overall? My conclusion is, you know, India is not Russia. There's a lot of um, reasons to be optimistic about the Indian economy. And a lot of people in this country are going to continue investing in in India and in Indian tech, given that's what we're talking about. Um, but, you know, India's path, it's not going to happen magically and by accident. And so in a sense, you need sensible political reforms to, to sort of do to and some degree what, to do what China optimistic did Optimistic on that? Yeah, uh, moderately so, at least in theory. I mean, India is damn complicated, so it's always mm-hmm. hard to say. But I, uh, I, I, you know, I came to love India while I lived there and I, I wish it well. And I, I see no particular reason why it shouldn't prosper Singapore in the future. Singapore is a little different. Singapore is a little bit different. So. Yeah. Do you like it there? <laughs> I do. Yeah, it's a great place to raise kids. Um, I think it's not somewhere that you feel affection for in quite the same way as you yeah. do with India. I mean, India as a foreign correspondent, I think India is every foreign correspondent's dream mm-hmm. posting. It's just it's How such a Ola fascinating doing? place. Um, reasonably well. Um, it's, They're going to uh, cut up the world. They're all going to cut yeah, up the I mean, world in, together. In, in the end, SoftBank is going to kind of decide yep. who gets what, right? That's um, right. They're going to split it It looks all like up. so. Uber sold out in Singapore, so we don't have Singapore anymore. We just got Grab. Um, but it looks like they're going to stick out for a while. In, in India, I wouldn't be at all surprised in the end if Uber just decided that India was too much bother and that yep. they'd, they'd do exactly the same thing as they've done anywhere else. But at the moment, it looks like they've decided, I presume, that the potential upside of the Indian market is so huge. That they don't want that, to do a deal yet. Well, that it is more important to kind of have that in the investor presentation for the IPO than to take it out. Yeah, I, that's I a fair point. Yeah, yeah, we'll see where that goes. Anyway, thank you so much, James. This is James Crabtree. He's written a book called The Billionaire Raj. I do like that book on like, the, the apartment. Did you go see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, apartment? I used to drive by it every day. Yeah, did you go up in it? No, no, I've never been invited. You've got to get inside yeah, their houses. I know. I, I've been inside almost every other one of these guys' houses, but this one is very yeah. um, resistant to outsiders. Yeah, so. I was just in a billionaire house. It was nice. I'll tell you that. <laughs> anyway, it was great. <laughs> I immediately was escorted out, but it was nice though I was there. Anyway, it was great talking to you, James. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or just visit recode.net slash podcast for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other podcasts, Too Embarrassed to Ask and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then.